0: hey everyone and welcome to behind the box i'm your host sherry and we'll be interviewing passionate people who are on top of their game discussing all things workplace culture and diving a little deeper into thought-provoking topics we think you'll love we truly hope it makes a positive difference to your life business or workplace thanks for listening Hey everyone, today's episode is with Larissa Garcia. She has an entrepreneurial mind and is driven by delighting people. She loves helping people reach those aha moments. And she also loves creating thriving workplace cultures by delivering strategies, mentoring and coaching. I love what she does because it's making positive changes to people's lives and organizations so that individuals feel good and can be their best when they're at work. In this episode, we dive deeply into the business world of people and culture, where it's going and where it is now. We talk about feelings in the workplace, how it drives behavior, what kind of leadership we need today, and how to change our minds to be truly agile. There's so much more juicy stuff here that I'm excited to share with you. Hope you enjoy it. Let us know what you think. Yourself as a people person, you're someone who is passionate about inspiring people and coaching people to be their best in the workplace, but you're also a huge advocate of creating really strong, thriving cultures as well. Mm -hmm. So if someone was to get to know you outside of what you do for a living, how would you introduce yourself? How would you describe yourself to people?
1: So non-professionally? Yes. Non-professionally. Um, so I'm, I'm a mum of two. I have two very um, energetic boys, so almost four and six years old. Um, so I, yeah, that's kind of what I, I guess I spend my, most of my time with them doing mum things. That would keep you busy. They do. They keep me really busy and somewhat fit as well. So <laughs> Yeah. Um, So, yeah, it's so interesting you asked me this question because I was asked about two years ago, a friend of mine who I've known for years. We were talking about work stuff and she said, well, what do you do for leisure? And I could not answer that question. I was really stuck on what I did for leisure because everything I did revolved around my work and professional development and reading and learning, which I love. It doesn't feel like a chore or like work to me. I love it. Um, but I realized at that moment that I didn't have any hobbies. I didn't have anything that I really loved doing. And so in those last couple of years, you know, I've recently taken up um, stand-up paddleboarding. So I like to get out on a stand-up paddleboard um, in the summer when the when the when you know the weather's calm and the the water's glassy. Um, I also do yoga a couple of times a week and I find that that really grounds me. Um, it makes me a better parent (laughs) just to have that time out and, uh, just reset, I guess, just have the, you know, downtime.
0: Yeah. That's awesome. How did you discover some of those, those passions or those hobbies? Like, did you just go out and start exploring different things?
1: Yeah, so I had about four or five years ago, I started this experiment where every month for 12 months, I'd do something different. And I think I got about eight months in before I ran out of things to do. But I did things like um, lawn bowling, you know, salsa dancing. Um, I went and saw old black and white movies or just something that I'd never done before and just expanding, you know, some of my... I guess my experiences and culture, culturally kind of opening up. And I found that that was a really nice way to learn new things and meet new people. Um, And I felt like I was really alive during that time. And so when it came to me realizing I didn't have a hobby and having to kind of look for one, um, I had sort of said to my husband, I'd love to do stand up paddle boarding. I'd seen people doing it at the beach and look like fun. It looked easy, like they make it look so easy. It's not easy.
0: It <laughs> but, um, looks <laughs> easy, but I feel like there's a lot of strength and balance involved into it.
1: There is. You have to have really good core strength, and I guess that's where yoga and stand-up paddleboarding kind of come together for me. Um, so yeah, it, it, my husband bought me a voucher fr- as a Christmas present, and so we went. I took a couple of friends down, and we went um, stand-up paddleboarding in, in Sorrento. And the day that we went, the water was glass. Like we were so lucky. We had such a good day to go out and and uh, and have our first lesson, and I was hooked. It's just being out on the ocean by yourself in the quiet, like you can't, there's no distraction. You can't be playing on your mobile phone. You can't be reading. You can't be, you, it's just you and the board and your paddle and you're out there kind of, you know, trying to keep up, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, try not to fall in the water, but enjoying the scenery as well and kind of, you know, looking out to what's going on out, out, out on the horizon a little bit, which was lovely. Mm-hmm. So the the tranquility and the calmness of that.
0: I mean, yeah. I love that idea of trying something new every single month as yeah. well. Like it's such a great way to see what lights you up and what excites you and to be able to do more of that. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. And so talking about your professional side, have you always loved the people and culture space? I noticed that, you know, you, you, been studying, you've been learning, you're doing coaching, Um, you've got a whole bunch of certificates that, uh, you know, help you support others in the workplace. Mm. How did it all start? Like where, when did you first get a taste of this and you knew that that was for you?
1: Yeah. So I, um, I relocated from Western Australia over to Melbourne in about, I think it was 2002 and I was working for Spotless. So really large um, they did catering, they're known for catering, but they also did facilities management. And I worked in their facilities management team for the defence um, group. So we looked after the defence sites. And I was doing like an admin role, a really great team. I love the team. They were really supportive. And one of the um, one of the directors in the team were doing some recruitment work. And I was sort of just, you know, watching him and thinking, oh, that looks really interesting. I wouldn't mind kind of getting a taste of what he's doing or shadowing him. And so I approached my manager and, and said, look, I'm just interested in what, Ian's doing you know and and my manager at the time Larry he was amazing he said great go off and do some study we'll pay for it um you know and so the organization and my manager at the time was so supportive and I guess that was a turning point in my career to be um because I I had never thought that human resources was something that I wanted to do. I didn't go to university when I was come out of school. I sort of went straight into work. Um, And so I always thought, oh, the HR roles are for people that are university educated. And it was such a, uh, you know, a wrong attitude to have. And I think people still have that attitude is that you need to have gone through university and have tertiary studies and be really experienced. And that's not necessarily the case. And I think it held me back in my early career from making some decisions that that, you know, could have maybe furthered me or or sort of, you know, I was never shy of moving forward and progressing, but I always had that in the back of my mind. And so I went off and did my diploma of HR and kept studying and found that I really liked the space. I loved, um, I loved talking to people and meeting people. And I loved when people got that, you know, that kind of, aha moment in their work that moment where they felt as though they belonged in that organization or had a a place in that organization and so that's sort of where it started and i ended up so my first real hr role um, was at the MCG and my first um, my first day of work was the Boxing Day test. It must have been like two thousand and four. Um, so the Boxing Day test, I rock up to the MCG to you know be the staffing coordinator at, of uh, Spotless Catering. And so any time that you buy a drink, uh, you know a beer and a pie at the football, anyone who serves you in those outlets is, is where I used to staff. I used to roster those staff and um, and sort of work in that in that space and. I felt in that time I got this really intense learning opportunity um, because you deal with all sorts of people in all sorts yeah. of situations. You're dealing with a casual workforce who are very transient. You're trying to engage them and keep them interested in a one or two shifts a week You know, at a, at a major football um, game or special events you know, in the off season. We do golf and Grand Prix and things like that. So um, I felt as though I got a fast track into my HR career and uh into dealing with people and those kind of er ir issues
0: Um, yeah what do you think were some of the really big key learnings from being so Mm. hands-on and trying to engage those type of workers
1: yeah so i guess the hands-on learning was around that um keeping people interested like what's their pull to the organization why are they wanting to come back to the, to the venue every week or, you know, why are they wanting to work there? And so for me, it's, you know, it's now named employee experience. And back then it didn't have a name. Back then it was just get some people in the, in the venue to, (laughs) to, you know, serve beer and pies. Um, But now it's employee experience. It's about giving people an experience and saying, you know, we've got a place for you here and we want you to belong. We want you to feel comfortable. We want to give you opportunities and um, you know, making sure that that culture of belonging was really embedded in that, that, that casual workforce, Um, hugely challenging.
0: Yeah, for sure. And when you look back even prior to starting uh, with Spotless before that time when you were in school, did you ever have moments that you had while you were working where you found joy in helping other people or found joy in, uh, you know, engaging or creating experiences for others? Like, you know, kind of, what what were the things that you loved when you were younger? Did they align to who you are now and what you do now?
1: Um, Yeah, so I was thinking about this recently actually. So when I was younger, I lived in a small country town in Western Australia and I was always doing a business. So I was always kind of quite entrepreneurial and back in those days, there was Avon and Tupperware and Posty Fashions, it was like a fashion brand that you, they're all, you know, party plan type stuff. And that's what I did. I was I went from one to the next to the next and I did all of those. And I think there was something else in there that I did at one time. And so I was always kind of bringing people together. I was always in that gathering mode where I'd bring people together and we'd talk and get excited about something or have something that was common for all of us. Um, And so I think that gathering of people and sharing knowledge, sharing, you know, sharing um, what was going on or sharing a product or sharing an experience, I think, um, yeah, it's sort of shaped, I guess, you know, how I work in the HR space now.
0: Yeah, because a lot of what you do now is basically that. You know gathering of people creating that community that space for people to share what they've learned with others right yep. can you talk to us about some of that work that you're doing because it sounds quite interesting
1: yeah so i work into kind of main spaces culture and capability so the capability piece is around um coaching and mentoring for hr practitioners Um, So when I was going through a lot of my early career roles, I always felt as though I was very alone. You know, there was sort of people within the organization. I was in a lot of Greenfields roles, so roles where I was the first or only HR person in the organization. And so there was never really anything, anyone to bounce ideas off or anyone to talk about HR or what strategies and and ideas. Um, And so when I went in... my own business, what I wanted to provide was an opportunity for people to find that within a community or within a a coach or a mentor. So that's the capability piece. And I bring together people uh, in an online mentoring program that I run, so the People Partner Mentoring Program, Um, and what I teach in that program is not just some soft skills for HR leadership, but also, you know, bring them together to talk about their issues, to talk about their ideas, to talk about what they're facing, because it can be quite a lonely profession um, at times. So I guess that mentoring program and and sort of that piece of the work around mentoring um, helps bring that community together. Um, from a culture perspective, the other side of the, the sort of work that I do is culture. So going into organisations, and it's mainly through the door of a, a leadership um, issue that might be going on, or something's happening, you know, from a uh, culture engagement. Um, piece has been done or a survey has been done and and they don't know what to do with that or where to go with that or it could be a leadership um, challenge that they're having and how that leadership, you know, what are the signals that you're sending as a leader and how does that impact the culture that you're that you're getting in your organisation. And so I work with, um, with leadership teams um, and people in kind of management roles to talk about their brand, leadership brand, um, and those signals and what they're setting up for people. How are they inspiring people to work better or, or be, you know, more comfortable in their work environment? How do we enable full-spectrum cultures in organisations and yep. have, a, you know, a culture where people can be themselves and bring their full selves to work?
0: Yeah, for sure. And I loved what you said initially about feeling lonely being in HR Mm -hmm. and I don't have a HR background, but even being inside the business and looking at HR, I feel that disconnect, um, not necessarily within HR because I'm not there, but I sometimes do feel the disconnect with. The business and partnering with like the people that need HR the most sometimes. Mm. Um, and so that's just an outsider's perspective, but I'm really keen to know uh, from what you've been doing with your work, what has been some of those opportunities um, to make HR or people in culture be less lonely and more integrated with the business. Yeah. I'd be really keen to get your thoughts on that and uh, to hear whether or not my perspective is also shared or it's just, you know, the, the perception of the business side?
1: Yeah. Look, I think, um, I mean, if I look back on my early career, I think as an HR practitioner, I was probably responsible for removing myself from the business slightly because it meant that when I had to deal with some tricky issues or situations or challenges, that that was maybe easier to do. And I think that in my early career, that worked for me. In my later career, though, probably the relationships themselves mattered more. And I think that there's the opportunity for HR practitioners, and this is sort of what I teach in my mentoring when I coach one-on-one, is building those relationships so that you've got that groundwork, you've done that groundwork, you've got that foundation, Um, because Only then you'll be more respected. You have the trust of the people that you're working with and you're truly partnering with them. And I think there's, that's the opportunity is to to truly partner with the business, understand their position, understand where they're coming from, what their role challenges are, how they, their department makes money or spends money or, you know, what their operational plans are and how it links to the strategic plan. So once you are partnering as an HR partner, once you're partnering better with your business unit, um, I think those relationships come to better, come to, you know, together more easily. Um, there's also this thing around vulnerability. I think as HR practitioners, we're not good at being vulnerable. We we feel as though we have to know everything, and I don't think that's necessarily the case. I think that um, if we were all things to all people, then you know, I think that we're probably um, in on very dangerous territory. I think that um, we can't be the expert in everything. and I think as we move more into employee experience and designing you know, employee experiences for people, we need to be able to go to the business and ask them what they want instead of saying, I know what you want, I know what you need, and I'm going to implement it. Take a step back and say, actually, let's not assume, let's take the human-centred approach, go out to the business and say, what makes your role challenging? Or how can we make this 10% easier? Um, so really showing that vulnerability of not knowing, taking that expert hat off, if you like, um, and being able to seek out feedback and seek out, uh, you know, what the business actually wants. Rather and
0: than yeah, and I love that you said that because I was going to say that that is basically the definition of, you know, being vulnerable, uh, yeah. asking others, hey, what's going to work for you rather than thinking that you have to be the expert. And so do you think that's where HR is going now? Like, do you think that's what the future of HR is? What are your thoughts?
1: Yeah, look, I think they need to be because, um, you know, if you, if you think about Brene Brown's um, definition of courage and vulnerability, it's around, you know, not knowing what the outcome might be but showing up anyway. And so sometimes in HR roles we go in with this um, experience that, or, you know, this, this approach that we need to know everything and we're going in to do a, a job and we're going in to, to, to be what, you know, what the Google or the Netflix of, of the world are, when in fact it's actually about the people that are internal to the organisation, they should be driving the culture. You are guiding and, you know, kind of putting some boundaries and, around that. Um, and so in the future, I think, yes, it needs to go to a more human-centred approach and there's some really great companies in Melbourne and, and Australia doing some great work around human-centred design in HR and getting HR practitioners to think differently, to be more vulnerable, to take that expert hat off. Um, and And open up the table for for employees to drive that more, you know, leadership to drive that more instead of HR coming
0: in and directing that. And for someone who's not really familiar with that human-centred design approach, could you um, give an example just to add a little bit more colour to it to see what it would look like for someone on the outside?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, a human centred approach is basically going out and doing some, um, so gathering some, you know, some evidence around or some inputs and data around what people want in the business. Um, So going out and doing some workshops where you're actually um, bringing parts of the business together to say, what do you want the performance appraisal process to look like? know what are our challenges what are the things that could make it um easier for us what is blue sky thinking and really opening up possibility i think is probably how i describe human centered design for hr practitioners um and then being able to set in in place a series of experiments so say okay we're going to experiment with this and we're not tied to that it's not that we have to make that work and put it in the business and make that round peg, fit that square hole, because that's not how it works. It's that, you know, the the employee group and the leadership group would give feedback on what their performance appraisal might look like, for instance, and you test it and refine it and test it and refine it and test it and refine it. Um, and then go through that implementation stage when it's, when it's you know, where it needs to be. Um, The ability to pivot though and change direction I think is important as well because what suits one group of people for performance appraisal conversation might not suit another group of people. So it's having flexibility within those things to move to move around.
0: Yeah and I think a lot of businesses now are actually trying to run everything in that way Mm -hmm. where it's not about you know taking six months to implement something and seeing it's perfect from day one. It's about just imperfect action and iterating, iterating until it's right for people. Yep. So it makes a lot of sense that HR are going into that space as well. Yeah. So working with the organisations and businesses and people in this space, from an outsider's perspective, what would you say is their biggest blind spot? So they may have come for you for something, but then you've noticed that, hey, there's this whole other thing that's going on in your business that you need to focus your attention on. Have you seen that happen with your clients?
1: Yeah, so I see this a lot with HR practitioners. Um we do a lot of activity. There's a lot of movement and we're always busy and we're flat out and we're trying to get work done and there's never enough time in the day and we're trying to get new people in and onboard them and, you know, sort of keep everyone, um, you know, happy. I think one of the things that we fail to do, though, is to look at that activity and see where it actually aligns with where the business is going. So I'm calling it this HR line of sight. It's about, you know, sort of HR teams operating and doing things that actually make a difference up the line instead of just doing um because i think we get so used to just being busy um we've always done it that way yeah for sure do a lot and so what happens is we you know, what I'm seeing and what I'm hearing is that a lot of organisations are saying HR needs to speak the language of the business and HR needs to be more aligned with where we're going or partner with the business better or understand what we do or be more strategic is the biggest one that I hear. Mm -hmm. HR needs to be more strategic and HR practitioners don't often know what that actually means. Um, So this HR line of sight that I'm speaking about is what's the activity that you're doing and how does it, you know, sort of align with the people pillars that you're trying to address and how do those people pillars align with the organisational strategy and what's happening at a higher level. And once you have that line of sight and you can make decisions that, you know, cascade down from the org strategy, I think you're in a better position to make an impact for people um, and make an impact for the business as well. It's about that kind of profits and people, um, you know, bringing the two together. so yeah, I hear that quite a bit is that there's this gap in, in the way that HR acts and the way that the business need needs HR to act.
0: Yeah, for sure. Strategy is so important, especially from a focus perspective, because as you said, if you are so busy every single day doing a million things and it's just always how you've done it and you've never stopped to think, is this actually going to make a difference to what my business cares about or not. As soon as you've got those pillars that are aligned to the, you know, the strat the business strategy, you're able to actually do basically an audit of what you're working on and go, okay, these things actually don't make sense anymore. Yeah. We shouldn't be, you know, wasting our time on it. So I think that's a really good tip for people to actually, mm-hmm sit down and reassess their strategy or create one if they don't have one.
1: Yeah, that's it. So a lot of smaller companies and um, organisations don't have a people strategy. So your big corporates, you know, they always sort of have something in mind. But but in terms of those smaller organisations, it's very very activity and compliance based. And this is where HR probably gets their poor reputation from of being, you know, compliance police, is because we have to get those things done. But where, where can we automate those things to make them easier so that we can move on and have that space to think more strategically, um, have that space to plan better, have that space to react to what's going on outside of the organization. You know, those, those strategies used to be three, five, ten years long. Not anymore. You know, Those org strategies are kind of one to three years at the most technology changes so quickly, you know, legislation changes quickly, the politics could change the entire way a business is run. And so the HR team, the people team need to be able to reflect what they're doing really quickly you know what's happening out there i call it horizon gazing you know so as an hr practitioner we need to be constantly looking out on the horizon and no matter what level you are if you're a junior hr person you should still be there's a horizon for you there's this horizon that you should be looking out on as well um if you're if you're a chief people officer or a head of people then there's a horizon for you to be looking out on and then cascading that down to the the sort of services you know part of the business um so yeah i think that there's this opportunity for us to be um acting you know or or being you know looking out on the horizon a lot more than what we actually are there's the opportunity for hr people
0: yeah and so what at the moment what what would be the key issues or key challenges that people call you in for Mm.
1: so um, (laughs) exactly what we just spoke about i think i get a lot of um coaching one-on-one coaching is all about so confidence is the first one i need some confidence i need to be able to speak um the language of the business and i need to be able to speak about talk about myself in a in a way that's more credible so i work a lot around um that piece of having confidence Um, you do what you know is valuable Um, and being able to put that into context as well. So a lot of people are missing just a little bit of context that helps them slot it into a space where they can think about it more clearly. So the confidence piece, most definitely. Um, I think as well... You know, if I talk about HR practitioners, they're of this—you know always looking at the business and how they can serve the business best without understanding how they work best. So I work from a strengths-based approach and work with individuals to say, well, what are you great at? What are you genius at? And how do you then make that work in the role that you're in? How can you put that in the context of the organisation that you're working in? So this strength-based approach, I really like. It's understanding yourself before ha- trying to fit into this context that you're working in. It's knowing where your genius zone is. Um, so I get that's that's the confidence, you know, that that confidence and credibility. When you've got confidence, you and and you know, you're starting to build relationships in the organisation. You're starting to build trust, and that credibility starts to come. And those partnerships and those relationships work much better. Um, and so it's it's sort of about those those confidence, credibility, um, gaining trust within the organisation, and the other one is about strategic thinking. Um, I have so many people come to me and say, I've been given some feedback in my performance appraisal that I need to think more strategically or I need to act more strategically and they have no idea what that means, and often because we've got our expert hat on, we're Afraid to ask our manager what what does that look like, or what does that mean, or how does that work? You know, in organizations where you have good leaders, I think that that's you know that's um, being passed on through role modeling and through organizations um, setting up in a psychologically safe space for people to ask those questions. But in more junior staff members or staff members where they feel they should know that. They, they sort of reach out and, you know, as from a coaching perspective, how can I think more strategically? Um, and that's where we look at that HR line of sight. You know, what's your role okay. in delivering on the organisation's strategy?
0: Yeah, those, uh, yeah, I love those three. So when you touched on the confidence building, I'm really curious to know, is that at every level, like junior to leadership, people are trying to build that confidence? Yep.
1: Absolutely. So, you know, whether that's with internally in the business, um, whether that's with other clients in the business or vendors in the in that are serving that business, whether they're. Um people who are kind of looking to go that next step up they are maybe in, a, in an HR business partner role or an advisor role and want to step up to that business partner role or head of people role um, or whether they're ahead of people already and they want to take that next step internal or external to the organisation. Um, so yes, the confidence is always there. It's always been sort of questioned and it's like, well, how do I prove my value? How do I talk about Um, What I can contribute and you know one of the things I talk about is that you can't truly collaborate until you know What your contribution is and when we start to look at our contribution and get clear on how we add value where we bring our genius Zone those strengths to the organization and the role how we build relationships how we maintain those you know How we really strengthen those ties to the organization? um, There's you know the opportunity for us to then work really closely with the business and build confidence through knowing that, that outcome.
0: Yeah. That you want to achieve. yeah, absolutely. Those two just go hand in hand so mm-hmm. well, don't they? Like the knowing what your strengths are mm-hmm. and it's almost like sometimes you are blind, you're blinded to your strengths as well. Yeah. So sometimes other people see a lot more in you than what you identify on your own. So I think mm-hmm. that's a really good one. The other thing was when you were talking about the strengths based, um, Um, Knowledge and also coaching leaders, and even from a junior level. Focusing on strengths also has been linked to better well-being as well. Like there's all this research, yeah, that, like you're nodding, like as you know, um, that shows the more you focus on your strengths, the happier and more content you are as a person. And it's not about ignoring what you're not good at, but it's about probably getting up up on par and knowing you might never be the best at that. But you should always lean into what you're fantastic at. And that is really what makes you you and unique as a person.
1: Yes. Yeah, you're right. I mean, the wellbeing piece, I look at things like strengths. So, I'm DISC accredited as well as kind of strengths trained with Gallup. Um, The things that I look at when I look at those tools and those approaches to working is It's the way that you use your energy and the things that you are good at and the things that you are passionate about takes less energy for you. Mm -hmm. Where you're working in an area that you're potentially is a a non-talent or a weakness, um, it takes a lot more energy for you to operate in that zone. And so could you imagine, you know, if I think about my strengths and I think about some of the really early roles that I sort of did in my career, my strengths are big picture, strategic, visionary, ideation type strengths um, I was working, so I think back to one of my roles that I had in my early career. I was data entry at a sawmill, and so
0: I can't know, see you doing that.
1: <laughs> no, I had my kind of green, green uniform I got on today. Um, green uniform, steel cap boots, and I would go out onto the you know the sawmill floor and collect all the, the paperwork, and then go back and put it in the system, day in, day out. Wow. And I was terrible. There was mistakes all over the place because my attention to detail, my analytical and my deliberative, deliberative themes are really low on my strengths, um, strengths list. And so I was constantly tired. I would go home at the end of the week exhausted because that's not the strengths area. I was working down in, in that area that just takes me so much more energy. Um, and you know, it was evident. It was really evident looking back on it now. Uh, yeah. But until I found out what my strengths were, I was like, oh, I had no idea.
0: Yeah, and did you did you just uh figure out what those were through experiences or did you do one of these um strengths like tests to, to identify those yeah of them?
1: yeah so i did i think disc was my first and i kind of realized i'm high d which is you know sort of that dominant Can you explain
0: disc to people who might not yeah. know? <laughs>
1: So DISC, there's four sections on a disc which is sometimes a lot easier to remember than 34 on a strengths um a strength spectrum so there's four on the disc kind of quadrant. Um, Dominant, um, which is big picture, visionary, fast-paced. I is influencing, so um, very water cooler, um, conversationalist, lots of friends, mm-hmm. lots of networks. You've then got Steady, and they are very loyal to the organisation, like routine, like to know where they stand. And then you've got Compliance. So Compliance are very detailed, analytical, like data, like figures, like numbers. Um, oh, so you me. were
0: totally in the opposite space. Completely <laughs> the opposite space. I mean,
1: I'm still about sort of task rather than people, so I still have to keep that in mind. But very fast-paced, very kind of forward-thinking, very out there. You know, I... Um yeah, I was always coming up with ideas and always coming up with new ways of doing things and always testing the boundaries. And so when I took my first assessment, which was DISC, and I saw that, I'm like, wow, this is amazing that it knows me so well. Um, And so moving on from DISC to the strengths piece was even more in depth, I think. You know, strengths have 34 strengths. When you take your assessment, they're ranked in order. And so your number 34 is the thing that your your weakness or your non-talent area. Um, but if you look at your top five they're your genius zone and where you can invest in those and and work in that environment where you can get to use those constantly then your well-being is going to be better your energy is going to be um, you know much more so much
0: sense yeah that makes so much sense doesn't it Um, and now that we're on this topic as well what I like asking people is what their or weaknesses or what they're not so great at and the reason why I like asking this question is because it might help someone out there who shares that because what I what I love to ask is how you're currently tackling it or not or choosing not to or choosing <laughs> not to do it so um, yeah'd be keen to know you know what may be something that you're not so great at and what have you done to help yourself be better and it could be nothing or it could be you have taken some steps towards it.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah. So my weaknesses, and sometimes I use it as an excuse, the weaknesses are the things that are on the bottom of my list in my strengths report. So deliberative, analytical, something called consistency. And consistency is about the same thing, you know, routine structure, routine. T- treating people the same. And when I saw consistency on the bottom of my list, I thought, wow, that really speaks a lot. Like I'm in an HR role. I should be treating people the same. And when I thought about it, I thought, I realise that actually that's why I don't work in the IRER space. Um, you know, the industrial relations, employer relations space. It's not my 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 area, and I think that's because I like the bespoke approach. To, to people, to, you know, talking with people and unpacking what their issue is and their context is and their perspective is on that and not just kind of taking that approach where where you treat everyone the same. Um, so I guess my, you know, with that deliberative analytical consistency being down the bottom of my list, my my weakness is actually getting focused on something and keeping focus on things. I'm like shiny ball. I want that and I want to, do this, I want to do this and, you know, I... I, at the start of um, not last year before I actually got myself a coach because coaches need coaches to surprisingly as a coach, Mm -hmm. I need a coach to keep, you know, keep myself on track. And she really helped me um, be able to, kind of put some work into buckets and get some structure around how I write and how I publish um, and how I come up with content and how I design um, learning, you know, learning opportunities. And so that for me was that one of the things that I, I did to help myself get some more focus and stay focused. Um, Yeah, it's an interesting one. The other thing that I was doing as well is, in, you know, try, I was trying to spread myself too thin because of that shiny ball syndrome. And I want to do this and I want to do that. Um, I actually got myself a content manager who was able to take on some of the stuff that I didn't have space for. But yeah. as a consultant, um, you know, she really helps me. So I write, she edits, um, you know, she will help me kind of think through where I'm going and what I'm wanting to do. So I bounce a lot of ideas around with her, um, which is great. Um, So so almost outsourcing those pieces of the work that I'm not good at and and handing that on to someone else was one of the best decisions I've made for my business. Um, And for my, I think just for my lifestyle as well, you know, for my, for my
0: sanity. Um, Yeah. And your energy levels, like what we were talking about. Yeah.
1: Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, for sure.
0: Wow. And so, um, uh, I, the the second point, so you mentioned three things coaching, and then you were talking about um, actually, let's start with coaching because I don't think a lot of people know what what a coach can do for someone. so um in your example, where you're working through focus, yeah. what does a coach actually do with you? like what kind of questions do they ask or what are they trying to get out of you for you to become more focused or create strategies to become more focused
1: yeah so for me coaching is about asking really good questions so in you know and as, if you were to contrast that with mentoring mentoring may be Um, telling you about my experience uh, rather than asking you good questions as a coach so as a coach i would be speaking you know talking to an hr practitioner to say well tell me about focus why is it an issue for you and getting to the root cause of why it's an issue like what what's really impacting that person um, when they're not focused why is it a problem for them so getting down kind of really deep into that um, and unpacking where they first learnt that behavior So um, where has that, where did they first notice that? Was it as a child? Was it in university? Was it at school? Was it, you know, in their first job? Was it something that, um, you know, kind of pushed them off their game where they became unfocused? Um, And then flipping that and saying, well, where were you most focused? And what were the things that you were doing? And what was going on around you? What was your mindset? And what was your internal state, what's your physical state? Understanding what focus looks like and doesn't look like for them. Um, and so really, as you're unpacking that with a person, they're usually answering those questions and getting some aha moments out of that. They're getting some realisations that, oh, yeah, that time that I was focused, I had meaning in my in my work or I had a great manager who was inspiring me or I was learning a lot. So there's, you know, there's a range of things that come into that, that conversation yeah. where they're going, yeah, that's why I was so focused. Um, you know, some people are more focused under pressure, whereas some people need a lot of time to plan. And so making sure that you're approaching that conversation where they lead that, they get to say, I work best under pressure, um, and then go, okay, so that's fantastic. You deliver when you're under pressure. What happens when you don't leave enough time to do something when you haven't got enough time in your contingency to, you know, to... um if something goes wrong, um, so unpacking scenarios and kind of working with them on what that might look like, and then as you're drawing that, t- you know, into kind of what focus might look like for them right now, it's understanding the context that they're in. So I'm really big on understanding context and making sure that we're applying context to a situation. So it's understanding well what sort of organisation you're working for, what's the culture in that organisation, how are you drawing meaning from what you're doing in your role, how are you working well with others around you, how are you inspiring others around you, because it's not just about you. Um, And so really kind of getting, it can go quite deep, but it always comes from the other person. In a coaching conversation, the other person you, you ask really good questions, they lead the way. And I think... Yeah.
0: yeah. I absolutely love that because it gives the person an opportunity to really reflect on all of their experiences, good and bad, to see what worked well and what didn't. And through that process, you're becoming so self-aware. Yes. And you're able to catch yourself more quickly when you're in this, like you know, really sluggish mode or you're not being focused and you're not doing what you're supposed to do because you're like, okay, these are the reasons why I'm not doing the things I set out to do on that day. Yeah. Um, yeah, And I also like what you were talking about in terms of in terms of your, your frameworks for content. So when you were speaking about content, obviously you're referring to the work that you're doing with your clients and Mm -hmm. probably also the content that you're trying to get out to people. Is that right? Yep. Yeah. And so you're talking about how you become focused in what you publish and what you share with others?
1: Yeah, that's it. Yep. So I use a couple of different methodologies and there's one out there that your listeners can actually um, look up. It's called Pink Sheets and it's from from, uh, um, the Thought Leaders Business School. Um, They are a business school that takes practitioners who are fantastic at what they do and makes them commercially viable, commercially savvy if you like. Um, And so my coach was a thought leader and she came out of the school and very successful. And so the pink sheets tells you how to think um, and how to gather information. So one of my strengths is called input. And that means I'm constantly gathering information and looking for more and learning and, oh, I'll just keep that snippet of information in case I can use it for something later on. And what it means is... We
0: sound very similar.
1: it can get unhealthy right you can live that in really unhealthy ways because when you're trying to get some work done you're just constantly kind of searching for the next thing in a healthy way though what it is is that you take it and you might file it in Evernote or save it as a Pinterest um you know pin or you know have have your ways of kind of managing that um what it does though as a coach and a facilitator when I'm on the fly and I'm in real time I can pull out something a quote or a stat, or a story, or a metaphor, or some science to, to bring that and say, well, you know, this is this has been proved here, or there's some research that you know that shows this, and it just it helps keep the conversation going, and it also normalises things for people. Um, so the pink sheets I find are really good for that. They do they give you a structure that is um, uh, model metaphor. You know what what you're kind of talking about. Your 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 uh, topic and then science so what are some stats or some science and evidence and some, some um you know kind of academic information and then a story and so you can move around that pink sheet however you
0: like when you're i really uh, like that yeah yeah and is it a free resource or do you have to pay for it
1: no that one's a free one so the thought leaders business school peter cook and matt church published that um for free so you just oh, go google yeah. pink sheets.
0: i'll well, include pink. it in the show notes yeah. for people to um click
1: on if they're interested it's fantastic. And it kind of talks about left brain, right brain and you know, how you talk to different audiences. Um, and I find that it's really good. I use it um, you know, in my facilitation so I can start with a story but move around anywhere within that pink sheet to keep people engaged. Sherry, you're frozen.
0: Oh, you're back. Oh, I don't know what happened don't know no, either you just froze oh okay so i just got up i just heard pink sheets it's free and i was going to put it on the show notes yep um if, so i we'll... think you
1: kept recording um so what i said is that yeah. Oh. <laughs> I can use that pink sheet to move around, um, you know, so I can start with a story and then go up and look at a model. I can then jump down and and talk about some science or go to a metaphor. I can kind of work my way around that pink sheet as I need to, or as the audience, you know, kind of needs that information. So it's just a nice structure from a facilitation, coaching, mentoring um, perspective. But if you, now that you know this, and when you go and have a look what a pink sheet is, if you have a look at my writing, you will see a loose pink sheet outline in all of my content and my articles are you there
0: i just froze up again yes yeah. <laughs> one 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 second i'm just going to double check my um Okay, we should be good. Cool. All right. So on the flip side, then, so we've spoken about um, focus being something that you're not great at, but it sounds like you've put in quite a number of things to help you with that. Which uh, they all sound amazing, and I can't wait to actually look at ping sheet. That's like, I'm really super excited about that one, yeah. especially because it's a free resource and a lot of people, you know, can get their hands on it. Yeah. Um, but on the flip side, you've obviously, you know, you've you've created this career for yourself. You've left school, you've had your employer pay for your training with mm. the HR space, and then you've decided to go out on your own and do, you know, coaching and culture work and strategy work for organizations. Like that is so amazing. And I admire you so much for doing that. I think it's incredible what you're doing. Mm-hmm. So I'm sure you are so proud of, you know, being able to make that, you know, that move from corporate to going solo and doing this on your own. If you think about your journey and it and it actually doesn't need to be a professional thing, it could be in your personal life as well. What would you say are some of your most proud proud moments? Um in,
1: and why? Yeah, look, I think I it's a really interesting question that I ask when I'm doing recruitment. I don't do a lot of recruitment these days, but back when I was doing kind of senior recruitment, the question I'd ask is what's a turning point in your career that really has put you where you are today. And I think um, if I was to think about turning points, it's, um, you know, so the first one would be moving to Melbourne was a massive turning point for me. So I decided I was in a sort of smallish country town and wanted more. I didn't know what more was, but I wanted more. I was really hungry for something else. Um, And so I decided to move to Melbourne. I only knew one person. And um, so he happened to be working away a lot uh, and had an apartment in Essendon and said, just come and stay at the apartment. And so. I kind of upended my life, put all my stuff in storage, and um, I was, you know, 22, came to Melbourne and um, and fell into an organisation that was fantastic. And I was with them for, you know, six years or something that was spotless. Um, and so that was a massive turning point, is, is moving to Melbourne. Um That particular friend, um, I stayed with him for about four or five months and he was working away a lot. Um, He's now my husband. Oh, that's such (laughs) Um, a nice story. Yeah. And so that, uh, we were friends before that, and that that friendship kind of developed and, and, you know, now here we are. Um, So going through, I guess, my career of HR, you know, jumping into that first HR role, going to the MCG and, and working there was a massive turning point in my life. And I met some of the, you know, some amazing people through that process. And I still am in touch with them today. You know, one of them, one of them is my best friend. And so I made some great relationships and, and uh, had a massive social circle um, from that. Um, and then went through a series of um, sort of organisations where I'd move around every, year, year and a half. And back then, movement in your resume like that wasn't well regarded. And so I was always kind of looking for the next thing and the next contract or the next role and going into an organisation and doing a piece of work, usually around some sort of transformation. So whether that be setting up all of the policies, procedures, compliance piece, getting a kind of a foundation and a framework for HR, and then moving on to the next organisation. And so I found myself in a, a that kind of freelance role where I was moving around. And again, that I I feel as though that did massive favours for me, you know, in terms of experience and fast tracking. Um, And then I got lonely in doing my own thing. It was lonely in organisation, in your own, um, in your own kind of solo adventure. And I wanted to go back into an organisation. And so I went back into an organisation at that stage and was there for six years. again, massive amount of great relationships and friendships that I um, had there. And on an international level, that was really interesting as well. So they were an international NGO and I worked with them in their international team. Um, So traveled to places like Vanuatu, Solomon Island, New Guinea. Um, You know, that was amazing to get that exposure. And every day was a learning. You would learn something new every day that you couldn't possibly be exposed to in a corporate environment and so for me, that was the most, I guess, I felt alive during that time because I was constantly learning and it wasn't until later that I found out that learning, you know, was a strength of mine and something that I needed to exist. Um, I, yeah, it was a massive, a massive learning opportunity. Um, I was thinking about doing some study at that stage and kind of thinking, you know, I'd, I'd been given some feedback by someone who said you can never be in an executive role or a director role unless you've got a master's degree. And I was, yes,
0: I know. I, roll. <laughs>
1: I know, because at the time it was supposed to be a, um, a performance, you know, like a performance appraisal process in that particular organization was that you meet one up. So you go, past your manager and to the next level who happened to be um, very senior. And so he had said to me, you, you've never been in an executive role. You've never been in, in a director role until you've got a master's degree. And so I was a little bit like, okay, is it, yeah. All right. Okay. And then I was kind of in that it's, you know, it's going through the Kubler-Ross model. It's kind of shock, denial, depression, <laughs> and then, you know, kind of moving through those stages going, surely that's not everything because I, you know, I'd gotten this far without it. Yeah. So I had considered doing some some extra training and some extra learning. Got the opportunity to do an MBA. And that was kind of the next, I guess, turning point in my life. Um, an MBA was something that I hadn't really ever thought about. Um, but the opportunity... Kind of come about, and I couldn't say no. And so I took on that MBA, and completely discovered myself in that process. That learning yeah. came to life for me. The focus piece. Um, so you know, I have some particular music that I listen to when I know I need to get something done, and it's headphones in. It can't be through speakers. Yes, i was in. saying. Yeah. And it's classical, and there's no lyrics. There's no words to distract me. It's just this, and I think it's anchored in me because when I put that on, I am head down, and I'm, a, and I can really get some work done. And so I know that that's my last resort you know stuff done but during that process you know I had a a seven-month-old baby oh wow four-year-old and so doing an MBA um, you know I was on maternity leave with with my second child how did you do that I have a very supportive husband um, oh, you know, so, yeah. so that man, that was my friend and turned Good into my on him. was, is the most amazing father and supporter for me. And he, yeah. you know, he had his own businesses and I think that's part of the reason why I wanted to have my own business as well is the flexibility around that family. Yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, he, you know, we, we shared kind of the responsibility around kids and he would take them on a Saturday or a Sunday and I'd have a whole day to kind of study. And then during the week, you know, a couple of nights a week, um, You know, I think having support around you when you're going through big things in life, I cannot recommend it enough. Um, You know, I said earlier that when I was out on my own and wanted to go into an organisation because I was lonely, um, the second time around, when I went out on my own, I made sure that I built a community around me, and I had a Slack group going. And I, as I met people, I'd add them to the Slack group, and I, you know, be on there kind of saying, "What do you think about this? Or does anyone have a tool for that?" Or, and I just found that such a great way to keep in touch with people. You know, anyone around in the city for a coffee tomorrow? Or um, yeah. I'm doing this workshop. What's you know, what's people's experience been in in previous workshops? So. That community of supporters, you know, husband included, um, was, yeah, was amazing for me and I think really helped through that time. Yeah, um, for sure. So the MBA, yeah, so the MBA, I, uh, it, it was a massive kind of, you know, massive feat to get through with a young child, young family. Um, and, yeah, got through that and graduated uh, last year, middle of last year. Wow. Um, Congrats. Thank you. Thanks. Yeah. It's a turning point. Definitely a turning
0: point. Yeah. It sounds like you've had a lot of key moments that have really changed the direction of your life. I mean, moving to a city and knowing one person who's not even there most of the time is a really big move in itself. Like, and I think that it's because you innately have that courage within you where you're just like it's that feeling inside you is big enough for you to just go stuff it I'm just going to do it and that's like happened through you moving you know from one city you know regional to a bigger city but then also identifying what you actually liked when you were in a role that probably wasn't going to be your future role Mm -hmm. um, and being able to move around and then you know get to a point where you get to do your MBA and you've got two kids. So yeah, it's just amazing to see that journey. I think it's incredible. It's really inspiring, honestly.
1: I think it's really funny. um, You know, you mentioned the courage, I think courage, I think it peaks and troughs. troughs. I think that there's this dialing up and dialing down of courage throughout your life. And it looks different in different um, circumstances. Um, And back when I was 22, you don't have much to lose, you know? So kind of moving to Melbourne didn't feel like a big thing. Um, but everyone keeps saying, oh, it's such a, you know, that's a, you're so brave for doing that. Yeah. And so when I went out on my own, you know, I, again, people sort of say, oh, it's so brave. It's so, you know, such a, such a great um, opportunity for you. And I guess my courage kind of went up. And then I got this great client um, when I was really early out my in my kind of business, and they were based in Berlin. And so... They, um, they had a head of people that hadn't had much people experience and so needed some support um, with some consulting, which is how it started, and then coaching. And then we did a people strategy. We sort of, you know, met up in Hong Kong and, and did a people strategy. And so that courage, I think, um, after that client had naturally come to an end, my courage kind of dipped and I started to kind of, you know, you question what you're doing. If this is the right space for you, should I just go back into an organisation? Is this, you know, where I'm heading? And then I got chatting to um, the creator of the Emotional Culture Deck. Um, And he has this philosophy around experimenting with things and treating things as an experiment. And When you treat things as an experiment rather than as something you're going to do and follow, you know, keep going with, it's easy to let go of it, The, the emotions attached to that perfectionism, or that getting it completely right before you put it out in the world, um, disappears. And so the courage for me is around just running some experiments at the moment. And that's, I guess, the last year of my business has been running experiments around some public events and the the mentoring program and, you know, putting out coaching um, circles that I'm sort of looking at running. So it's constantly experimenting. And as courage goes up and down, it's, you know, taking another leap as it's up.
0: Yeah. I, I love that idea of experimenting as well, because it is kind of non, it, it is kind of non-committal because you're just experimenting. Like who knows what's going to happen. Yeah. Um, so it's a good way to see things, especially when you're completely new to a role or mm-hmm. if you've just started a business or you're trying to get something off the ground, it's a really, um, really good piece of advice for people.
1: Yeah. And it means I can be more agile. You can be more agile when you're experimenting because you're not tied to that thing and making it succeed. It's that If it's not a product or a service that people want, then great, move on and find something else that they do want.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, So now thinking about, you know, your experience with employee experience and workplace culture, what kind of leadership do you think is needed for a time where you're right, we're continuously iterating and experimenting and the landscape of technology and even how we work is changing. What kind of leadership do you think companies need to survive?
1: Yeah. I mean, it it comes back to being very agile. I think leaders need to be, you know, quick to be able to change, not be too attached to things. And if, the landscape, that horizon gazing piece changes, you know, if something out there changes, then being agile enough to, to go with that and to kind of change direction or pivot a little bit. Um, I think, you know, we've already mentioned human-centred. I think, it, you know, we need to be moving toward, towards more human-centred um, workplaces or work environments. Um, and as we go more remote, I think that, you know, if you're not keeping up with that, it's going to be, it's going to come, you know, in a way that maybe you can't control. So, I think you know, letting people kind of build that culture or guide that culture as an employee in what they want, what they need, how they need to work. Um, I think. Um, But as a leader, it's being charismatic and that word's not used very much anymore. You know, that charismatic leader where people want to be around you and are inspired by you and want to follow you. And it's, I don't see it much anymore. I had a a manager, a leader that was um, in a previous organization that I worked with. And the way that I described him was charismatic. It's that people wanted to be around him. They were interested. He was, you know, he shared information. He was open. He was transparent. He cascaded things from the top down to, you know, put it in a context that people understood um, and people wanted to follow him, you know, they, he wanted, yeah. they wanted to be around, around that.
0: And it sounds like that kind of charisma is coming from a place of someone who actually cares about the purpose of the company yeah. um, and is becomes passionate about it. Mm-hmm. And that's where that energy comes from, where they do have that time to be able to continuously be sending messages from the top down, because that in itself takes a lot of time and a lot of energy. Um, And so sometimes that it is that word isn't really used. And sometimes I think it's hard to describe why someone has it. Like, why does, why does someone have it? It it doesn't necessarily mean you need to be this outgoing, loud person. Um, I, I think it means it's just you are so aligned to that purpose and that vision mm-hmm. and because you're so passionate and you're behind it, you have this energy that you can keep, keep going with it yeah. and yeah. bring everyone with you.
1: That's it. And it's being able to, I guess, create meaning for each person in that team. You know, as a leader, I think it's really hard to stay on top of your technical requirements of your role and what you're good at but also bringing the people along and if you can create a piece of meaning for each person that is in your team and be able to communicate that really well um then people you know ha- they're more inspired by you they're more they, they trust you more you've got more credibility you know there's that um psychological contract to the organization and to the to the manager or the leader in that yeah. situation so yeah
0: yeah and then the other one that you mentioned was about an a leader a leader who is agile yeah. um, when i think about really senior leaders in a business, I sometimes empathize with them and think it's actually really hard for them to be agile leaders because they are making commitments to maybe board members or to their CEOs or to their teams. And it it can be, even if you're not in a senior position in a, in a company where you've committed to a whole bunch of people, even if it's, maybe it is that experimental mindset but is that is that how you would help someone who needs to be agile like would you be coaching them on putting that experimental perspective on it or also in how they communicate what they're going to do does that also need to be hey we're experimenting what is it that someone needs to do so they're in a position where they don't feel bad about changing their minds once they've committed to something like what would you what's your advice there
1: yeah i mean so this is driven you know this is an organizational culture thing as well is that you know organizations that are traditional are very consistent in their approach and have those plans that we have to stick to but they want an innovation culture, you know. They want customer centricity, but they're actually making decisions based around product rather than customer. So, I think it all comes from strategy. You know, if I was to be honest, it comes from the way that the strategy is being led and what's being put out there. So that creates the culture. That pushes the culture down from that strategy level to the to the leadership level. Um, as far as a leader being, you know, being kind of agile, I think that's in mindset. That's in that growth mindset piece. It's it's mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. Um, we can do. Uh, we can do whatever we we set our minds to it's not about this oh we can never do that or that's the way we've always done it so I think it's about mindset and being agile in your mindset to say yeah let's give this a try let's experiment or what skills do we need for that let's go look for them or let's train for them let's you know let's look at that because I think it's about resourcing as well you know what are the resources, resources that you've got available and if you're going to have one team of people that are Purely consistent on one, you know, approach to development or one approach to, you know, project management. When things change, are they going to be agile enough to change that quickly? Um, Mm. You know, in the way
0: that yeah, that's a really good point, and also tying into my next question, which is around people and culture. Um, my first question is, how would you describe workplace culture? And my follow up to that is, what are the most important pillars that you need to put in place to build the culture that you want for your organisation?
1: So, workplace culture has always been this mysterious, kind of mythical, you know, thing that exists in an organisation, and I think that's why a lot of people have been scared to work in the culture space or for their organisations to move into, you know, a culture, um, you know, a program or project or transformation, because it's really hard to measure. And there's a difference between engagement and culture. And so there's this often this kind of back and forth. The way that I describe it for most people is that culture is an outcome. Culture is an outcome of all of the practices, processes, procedures, behaviors, beliefs, whatever's going on in your organization, culture is the result of that. And so, you know, one of the things that I've been working with um, recently is the emotional culture deck, um, which is how I think you and I connected. Um, We were talking about the culture deck. And one of the things that um, the founder had looked at when, when designing that deck was this difference between cognitive culture and emotional culture and cognitive culture is sort of like the facts the hard data the shared values the shared assumptions in in how the organization should be whereas emotional culture is much more about how people are feeling and it's usually driven from an individual perspective so co- emotional culture can be felt through things like body language, facial expressions, um, decor, rituals in the organisation, rituals at an individual level. Um, and it's created, I guess, because of those things in micro moments. So, you know, if you look at an emotional culture, it's about feeling, whereas a cognitive culture is about thinking, this is what we think we should do, this is how we think we should act, this is how we think we should, you know, um, execute that process. Whereas emotional culture is much more about feeling. How do we feel and how do we want to feel at work? How don't we want to feel at work? And what are we doing to disable those feelings or, you know, what are we doing to enable people to feel much more pleasant emotion in the workplace? Um, Because if you look at it from a um, behavioural perspective, You know, there's this set of behaviours that usually sit behind values. So at the top you've got sort of values um, and they're very conceptual usually and behind that is a set of behaviours. But what drives behaviour is emotion. So it's getting that level down and and talking about um, culture from an emotional level is actually digging down, you know, those couple of levels.
0: And do you think people are talking about that now? Like people are actually sitting in a room going, what are people feeling what do we want them to feel and do you think that they see the connection between how you feel drives how you behave? Yeah.
1: Look, I think it's a quite a new concept. Um, I wasn't aware of kind of emotional culture or even I had never heard of cognitive culture versus emotional culture before I started using the the culture deck. And so I think the the emotional culture deck, you know, the deck of cards allows people to have those conversations. But if you are not paying attention to your culture or it's not um, something that's crucial in your strategy, then perhaps you're not having that conversation. The conversations that you're having are more perhaps around um, Friday night drinks, um, you know, uh, pool tables, beer in the yeah. fridge, what are we serving? You know, all of those things um, that still, I think, contribute to culture, but they're not a starting point. They're an end point. Um, yeah. And making sure that those things are aligned with context, which is where the emotional piece comes in. And that's very much... You know, going through and emo- mapping emotional culture is a human-centred approach. It's, it's going out and asking people what they want to feel and don't want to feel in the workplace. Um, and for managers to be able to respond to that in time. You know, if someone doesn't want to feel, um, you know, uh, disillusioned in the workplace, then what's, what are managers doing to, to contribute to that disillusionment? and What can they do instead? Um, so, no, I don't think people are having that conversation. Not enough. Um, The the organisations that I work with um, are starting to have those conversations, but emotional culture is a little bit of a scary discussion because it's very personal and it's very subjective. Um, And so some people don't want to go there. They perhaps don't have the psychological safety in the organisation to go there. You have to have a level of psychological safety to be talking about emotions with employees. Uh, And so you need to create that psychological safety before you can do that. that Yeah.
0: Yeah, that makes complete sense. And then earlier on as well, you were talking about how your, the actual resources and people that are working there and are they the right people mm. to get the job done? If a leader is that agile type of leader, do they have the right people to execute on that experimental style of working? How do you, or what are your tips on looking and hiring for the right culture where it does fit into what that organisation is trying to achieve. Do you have any tips or advice on how you've done it or how you have seen it done really well?
1: Yeah, I guess in terms of um, kind of getting the right fit, I talk about, a lot of people talk about culture fit and, you know, early career, I was all about culture fit. We need to find someone who fits the culture. We need to find someone who works well with that team. Where what we found was that, and you know, there's some studies around it, is that there you attract same, same. You have this bias towards working with people that you like and that speak the same language as you that maybe have similar strengths because they're talking in a, in a, in the same way. Um, or they work at the same pace. And so what you end up with is a team that's not very diverse. And so what I like to talk about is, you know, and it's out there around cultural, it's around contribution. What can they contribute to the culture? Um, and I like to have this well-rounded team of people, you know, even if, um, if they're a slower thinking um, sort of person or their style is slower thinking, they can still contribute to an agile team. They can slow them down and say, hang on, have we considered this? Because if we run ahead and do that piece, then we're going to end up in hot water later on. So there's still a there's still room for, you know, people that are slower paced or slower thinking in a faster paced and more agile environment. It's up to the leader to bring them along and make sure that they feel as though they're included and 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 belong in that in that team and are valued for what they bring to that team. Mm,
0: um, I like that perspective because it, it does actually change the way you think about hiring because it makes you look at the diversity you already have yeah. and what's maybe missing from it, That's it. Yeah. rather than just going, let's hire someone. And then you just get along with all these people and you're like, these are the best people we're going to hire them. They're just like us.
1: Great social environment and relationships are great. The work actually getting done where it needs to, to get done.
0: Yeah yeah I love that that's a really like good piece of advice um that we should get out there and share yeah um so so thinking about everything that we've spoken about so far mm-hmm. in terms of culture workplace um experience employee experience what would you say to people who are not believers of investing time into that so leaders who might be putting their processes their financials their PL, their products before you know stepping into the space of people and culture and really investing time into what the employee experience is like and investing time into what the pillars are for people and culture that line up to what their strategy is yeah. what would be your advice in terms of speaking to them and you know being able to influence them or you know what would you say to them to get them to change their minds or at least think differently about the people and culture space
1: yeah interesting question um i guess i'd probably be asking what takes up most of their time in the workplace and to be honest you know usually when i ask that question it's usually people it's usually that i'm dealing with um conflict or i'm dealing with a leader that you know is too blunt and too forward, or I'm dealing with a leader who won't have a courageous conversation that needs to be had, or I'm dealing with a salesperson that doesn't sell. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so, you know, when you start to kind of drill down, it's, it's usually that a lot of the time is spent trying to fix things instead of setting expectations first. Um, and oh, I love that. Yeah. Yeah, so we, true. yeah. I think we're, we're kind of trying to backtrack all the time instead of just being clear with what people need to do and, you know, let them know, let them figure out how to do it, but give them some guidelines and some boundaries on on what it is and what the outcome is. I'd recently had a discussion with someone, um, it was a coaching conversation, and she said, oh, I'm in this new role with this new organisation and they don't really have a position description for me and I'm not really sure what I'm supposed to be doing. And, you know, they're saying that it's this fluid role. And I said to her, look, I, you know, and this is the mentor coming out of me rather than the coach. I could have asked her some questions and talked about that. But my, my mentor said, you know, position descriptions can be unclear, but outcomes cannot. And when you're speaking about those things, it's making sure that you are clear with what the outcomes that you want from people. Um, what does success look like? You know, what does this yeah. finished product look like? What are we seeing or hearing or, or you know, feeling when this product's successful or finished? Um, and then having, letting people go as adults in the world to go and figure out, you know, um, how they want to execute on that, giving the guidance, being there as the guardrail, if you like, to, to help keep them on track and checking in frequently, but allowing them to figure that out themselves.
0: Yeah, and... I think that is such a, um, a common experience for employees. Actually, like moving into a new role, or they've just been moved because of um, a change in the work, in the in the business. That happens quite a lot. Mm-hmm. And getting to the point of what what are you trying to achieve in the role, and then you can do whatever you want with the role as long as you're achieving those things. It doesn't really matter. Yeah.
1: Um,
0: so yeah, that's a that's a really good one. And focusing on you're right. Like everything that's going wrong in the business is coming from people because people are running your business. So if if you're not investing them, more things are going to go wrong. So that's a really good one. Um, so if we're thinking about uh, some of the things that I really love to talk about is, um, initiatives or like habits or rituals or things that are small, that take little effort, um, that can make a really, Positive difference to someone's life or the workplace. I really love talking about those things. I'm all about making small changes um, towards something you love or towards making, you know, a habit stick. Yep. So I was keen to know from your perspective, what are some of the little things you've implemented in life or in work that have led to some significant positive changes?
1: Um, so for me personally, do you mean, yeah. or you know, yeah,
0: personally, or it could be you've seen it professionally as well in mm-hmm. some, somewhere you've worked. Yeah, someone you've worked for. Yeah,
1: um, so little things. I'm just trying to think about kind of little stuff. I mean, in terms of, um, it's probably the big thing was going back and getting a coach for myself. You know, I yeah. was kind of at that that time in my life where I didn't know whether HR was my thing. I didn't know whether that I was still passionate about it and what I wanted to do. So my MBA took me from kind of this focus to this focus to go. There's so much more out there that I could be doing. Um, and so in terms of, I guess, investing in myself was the biggest thing and saying, well, yes, coaching, although it can be expensive, you know, at times, um, it's still affordable, you know, if you can manage that, um, yeah, it's, it completely changed the way I run my business. It completely changed the way I think about um, research, gathering research, yeah. and, and being able to put that to good use. So, you know, what I'm gathering, is it useful or is it just interesting?
0: Yeah.
1: Um, so that was a good one. Um, finding out what my strengths were uh, yeah. and being able uh, to...
0: Yeah, that's a huge one.
1: Yeah, being able to push those in direction that, um, you know, that I served me in my business, um, made sure that I have enough energy at the end of the day um for my kids and my husband. Yeah. Um so from a I mean from a corporate perspective, one of the biggest things that I saw change a culture or or guide a culture to be more healthy was around values around bringing in values Uh, so the international NGO that I worked for we had values but they often weren't lived they were on a wall Um, and the director that came into that role so she started my new director started the day that I came back from maternity leave after my first child and we sat next to each other honestly like the back of her chair was here so like we're working very closely together and I felt really sorry for her because she had come from a large corporate into um, kind of this, this NGO that was in constant kind of chaos and, you know, good chaos because there's lots happening, but, but sometimes too much. And so she really brought the values to life, the values. She just, it it was really, you know, kind of inspiring how she did it. She just assumed that people lived the values and started to, slowly build that into how we spoke to people, how we did performance appraisals, how we um, assessed talent, um, you know, how we acted in meetings, how we spoke to each other, um, you know, how we spoke to our beneficiaries and our country officers, how we um, recognised people, you know. It kind of started to seep into everything that we did. But it wasn't a big deal. She didn't say, "We're doing a values rollout and you know start this kind of massive process." It was just this small, incremental, almost um, really subtle way of of bringing those values to life. Um, But starting to assess people on you know against those values in a meaningful way. You know, we were assessing against values previously, but when she came to the organisation, she started talking about what values look like in action rather than just what's the word and what does that word mean? It's what's the behaviors behind them and how do we know and how do we make sure that we're, you know, we're acting in, in the values, but we're also picking up other people and giving them feedback that they're doing a great job or have you recognize them acting into those values.
0: Yeah. I love that. That's a really good one. Actually thinking about, I did like there have been values identified and then assuming going into a business, well, if this is what they are, then this is how it should be and just doing it. Um, what, another one I found interesting was obviously it sounds like getting a coach completely changed things for you, but what was it? What made you, uh, your what made your mindset shift to thinking I'm going to, I'm going to actually work with a coach. Cause I think that's for a lot of people, it's a, it's a big thing. Like you're being vulnerable to a stranger. You're sharing like your core belief systems with them, the stories you've created in your head with them. Um, So what, what made, what was the trigger for you, I guess, to make you say, I'm going to do it.
1: Yeah. Um, so it was probably very much the story in my head is that I'm not good enough or I don't have enough experience or, um, I don't have enough senior experience in a HR role, or I haven't been in a business where I've had to drive it you know, forward. I kind of, yeah. So all of those things, the thing that I guess got me across the line, you can only coach yourself so much. You can only ask yourself So many questions. Whereas a coach who is external and on the other side of you know what you're experiencing, they don't have that emotion that you've got. So sometimes our emotion takes over those stories in our head, or takes over us, our ability to ask ourselves the right question. Um, So as a coach, I'm pretty self-reflective, but there's still stuff that someone will you know my coach or or someone that's a friend that's a coach will ask me, and I'll go, oh, holy shit, I hadn't thought of that. Um, And so that ability to um, to have someone else see it from a different perspective and say, okay, well, you're seeing it like this, how else could it be? Um, and really guiding, you know, me to think differently and open up, I guess, some neural path, new neural pathways to say, okay, well, that's just cause I've done it like that. Doesn't mean it's like that. Or just because someone says I need a master's,
0: you know, to be doesn't in. It team, yeah. It doesn't mean that's the answer. Just that's I'm, it. That. Yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah wow okay that's really yeah it's good it's good to think it's good to be able to recognize that as well in yourself to be able to say okay well I've explored and I've explored and I've explored mm-hmm. and I need that external view yes <laughs> and someone to bounce off yeah with who is not as emotional as I am with yep. this so yeah yep. I like that yep.
1: and she I mean the coach that I chose I chose her very strategically she was in a. you know she's in a space that I'm want to be in she's um doing things that i want to do she's similar background to me and had kind of you know has a lot of relationships in corporates where i want to be working and so that insight that she brought as well she was coach mentor for me you know not just coach Um, and i think that's important is that finding you know depending on what you're needing a coach for finding someone that really aligns with where you're going and what you want to do um, was important for me. I needed to have for her to have credibility in the space that I want to work in.
0: And, and for someone who might be listening and getting curious about having a coach, how did you find your coach?
1: Um, so I knew my coach. I had met her many years previous um, in a, in a previous organization and had kind of kept an eye on her and watched what she was doing Um, she had gone into Thought Leaders Business School and she started posting about some of her experiences. She was writing a lot more articles. She was getting traction on social media that was interesting and starting a lot of discussions. And I just thought that's an interesting space to be in. I, you know, I was curious about how she was suddenly writing all of these articles and putting all this content out there. She was very talented learning and development, um, like a trainer, um, trainer facilitator. And that's kind of the space that I wanted to be in. And so I watched her for quite a while. I was kind of checking in and watching. Um, And I think, you know, every now and then I'd reach out and say, you know, I love what you're doing. You know, this is exciting, this is interesting. Tell me more about this. And she would always have the time to do that. She'd always kind of shoot me back an email and say, yeah, doing this, doing that. She was very open and generous with her time. And so um, for me, that kind of got me across that line to say, well, she's someone that I want to be like that. You know, I want to be sharing my knowledge and be generous. And I want to be seen, you know, as someone who knows what they're doing, that that has that expertise
0: yeah wow okay um and so to to wrap the last question is about heroes oh God. and heroes <laughs> and heroes uh can be people in your everyday life or they can be famous people that inspire you um but i love asking this question because uh firstly it opens up um a new door or new avenue for people because sometimes people talk about you might talk about someone that is completely unknown to someone else. Mm. And it puts them on a completely different path because they get to learn from this other, this hero that you have.
1: Yeah.
0: So that's why I love the question. Um, and I'd love to know who yours are and why.
1: I, t- to be honest, like I've, I've, I've only ever been kind of asked this question once. And it was about, I reckon it was about 10 years ago. <laughs> I didn't answer it then. And I feel really, tr- it's a tricky one. I feel like the heroes need to be this big, important, you know, person that or thing. Um, you know, that everyone knows and is famous for doing something remarkable. Um, I guess, you know, if we talk about the meaning of hero, it's someone that you really admire and you, yeah. you like what they do. And I have a friend um, who lives in Sydney and we met through work. We met through um, one of the previous organisations I was at and she um, we lost we lost touch for quite a few years, actually, probably seven or eight years. And in that time, I had two kids. I got married. I bought a house. I changed careers a couple of times or, you know, changed jobs a couple of times. But when we reconnected, we clicked again and we just took, you know, it was even stronger than what it was before. And I really admire her perspective on life. Um, she has great insights and a great way to get to a court issue really quickly. And, um, yeah, I really love... Her thinking and her energy and I think for me she's kind of my go-to person she'd be the one that if I'm really struggling with something and no one else I felt no one else could solve it I would go to her for that for that conversation um she's a good friend yeah she's a great friend and she's again generous and loving and kind and compassionate and you know um it's all the things that I all those traits yeah, yeah all those things that you want to be so aspirational
0: yeah i think you're all those things by the way
1: oh, thank Rosa. you <laughs> <laughs> People can see it. it's funny you can't see it in yourself but you can you can see it in others
0: yeah yeah for sure that's so true oh well, thank you so much for your time
1: thank I you it's been really to interesting Bye. talk and um yeah look forward to seeing where brainy box goes next
0: thank you i learned so much from listening to larissa during our recording and i hope you did as well As you heard, she's someone who has really worked on her limiting beliefs and values with a coach to rise up and lead a career and life she's always wanted. If you want to follow and hear more from Larissa, you can find her on Instagram at Larissa Garcia. You can also show your support for this podcast by screenshotting this episode, tagging at Brainy Box and telling us what your key takeout was. Thank you. Thanks for taking the time to listen to this episode of Behind the Bee Box. My journey with Brainy Box has inspired me to share what I've learned from others with you in the hope it makes a positive difference to your life, business, or workplace. Your feedback and love is what keeps me going. So please follow us on Instagram and LinkedIn at Brainy Box or connect with me on LinkedIn at Sherry Amami. If you haven't yet, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Have a wonderful week and I'll speak to you soon.